The Dungeons & Dragons team hosted a State of the Industry panel at GameholeCon 2017, and Nerds on Earth recorded it for your enjoyment. You'll not only hear about the current state of the industry, but you'll also get insight into upcoming Dungeons & Dragons storylines. Enjoy!
I'm just there to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're gonna have to answer some questions about the grog. Someone had a question about the grog, and it's DC, and you have to answer that because you are responsible for the grog. Yeah, I have so it's up to you to, to fix it. <laughs> fix it. You fix it. Yes, fix it. There are questions. So, so any grog questions go to him. Yeah, it's his fault. So, the. Um, so yeah, so that's basically where we are now. For us, it's sort of like the first big expansion of the game. It's a little bit of a turning point in our understanding of the game. And I imagine three years from now, we might be having a similar conversation about a potential future project of, okay, now we're six years into the edition, and here's what we've learned since then, and here's what's come up as far as questions, or things that need more depth, or more options, and we're going through something similar. Uh, but to us, a lot of it's just the, the sort of like the lifespan management of the edition. Um, the book also represents a development of sort of our behind-the-scenes processes as well, because the playtest process is sort of a modified version of what we used for the 5th edition core game. Um, we had a lot of success with the playtest for 5th edition. We had almost what, half a million, half a billion, million people? <laughs> half a million people, like almost 500,000 uh, playtesters. There were a lot. Uh, and we had a process for, for getting through that playtest feedback, and yeah. it's been refined in the three years since, so we get through that playtest much more quickly. And uh, the great thing about Xanathar's Guide is it has been playtested, so we know that these new systems and things, rules we're putting in place, have been at least stress-tested in people's games. We don't feel, or we're not afraid that we're putting out something that might actually ruin someone's game experience. Yeah, we're always very sensitive about that. That's why we do so much playtesting. Uh, it's, there's really two halves to it. There's obviously we want to keep things balanced, so it's not. If you, we don't want you to add something to your game and regret it. Um, but we also want to make sure that the stuff we're adding to the game is actually something that's useful to you. It's not just a need we're creating out of thin air. So when we play test something, it's not only just is this balanced, but also just the overall is this interesting. Um, we don't generally directly ask that question because usually it's more use that shows us. Um, but we do have pretty high thresholds for ratings. Uh, if anything falls below that, it, I mean, we play test a lot more subclasses than we're actually publishing. Uh, if you follow everything. What happens so, to the stuff that we don't put in a book? It gets sent to a nice puppy mill. Typically, what will happen with that stuff is um, it's going to get put in the back burner, and then we'll decide is it something that's worth taking on the pass on, or is it something that just didn't really connect, and then we'll, 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 we'll do something else in its place. So uh, the next sort of big mechanical pieces uh, for us are the uh, the, uh, the Mystic with Psionics, and we have the Artificer. Um, those are two classes we play tested. They're up on the DMs Guild now. Um, neither of those, like they both scored very well in terms of overall interest, but uh, there was just so much bulk to their design that we didn't feel confident we could put them in this book and have it be balanced. So they're going to require a lot more testing, especially the Mystic. Um, Actually, quick question. Who here, if, so if you could uh, pick between Mystic or Scion, which would you pick? Who would pick Mystic? All right, who would pick Scion? Okay, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, okay. So, the, um, so yeah, that's something we're kind of looking at too, is look at the flavor and how things go together. The, um, and we also have the Revised Ranger, so that's another thing that's not in this book, uh, and that's because we didn't want anyone to feel they had to buy a, purchase a product to uh, I don't want to say correct because it's not necessarily a rata, but to update something from the player's handbook. So we didn't want the experience to be if you're in an Adventures League table, someone's playing a revised ranger and they say, oh, that ranger looks cool, that doesn't match what's in the player's handbook, how do I get my hands on it? We did not want the answer to be, oh, go buy this book. We wanted, I mean, we wanted to be like, oh, go to this website and download it. Because you've already played, you already paid for your player's handbook, you don't need to go 
purchase what you're reading. So basically look. So yeah, those are our two things there. The, the revised ranger's up next. Uh, that's what we'll be working on. And then after that, we'll see about the mystic and the artificer, where they end up. So we have some plans we're kind of starting to talk about for them and, and what might be the best product home for each of them. So. So yeah, that's kind of the uh, state of D&D products in a nutshell. Uh, we don't have any new products for now, so if we have any questions about a new product, we just can't, we, we'll just sit here in silence for five seconds and not answer it. Because uh, we don't have, it's not yet time for our next product announcements, but I think right now every product we're releasing in 2018 has either been written or is in the process of being written. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's one that's sort of at the, the tail end of the process. Yeah. the editing slash layout phase. There's one that's in the playtesting phase yeah. uh, that has been written, at least the first draft, and then there's one that we have design turnovers for, but they haven't been uh, developed yet. Yep. And there's a, uh, well, I shouldn't say anything else, I think it's enough. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> but as, as, you, as, you can, as you know from just looking at what we've released in the last couple of years, is there is a balance in between crunching products and story-driven, i.e. adventure products, that we want to give both. It's just the rules stuff has to be, um, not, I don't want to use the word ration, that's not the right word, but it has to be very carefully managed and, yeah. and curated so that it doesn't mess with the game. Uh, whereas adventures uh, are, DMs customize them anyway, so. But every year you can expect some kind of adventure content to drive a story that yeah. we want to tell. And with adventures, we don't do public play tests of those because obviously everyone, if you read the adventure, it's not as much fun to play. So we like the shared experience of, we do have, you know, if, if you buy the adventure, that's when everyone starts yeah. playing it. So we do have closed, what we call a closed play test, which is, you know, people who have an NDA with us that we share files with and they play through. Um, yeah, I think and, on the last adventure, Tomb of Annihilation, we had almost 300 closed playtesters, play yeah. which was our biggest pool for any adventures we've done so far. Yeah. Oh, question in the back. How do you get to become one of those playtesters? I don't know, Chris, how do you get to become one of those playtesters? There's a, a bribery process. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk after the session. <laughs> but Chris uh, Lindsay is actually the guy who uh, ranked uh, but, but seriously, um, uh, moment we're not looking for new playtesters only because we have a whole bunch of them now. We, I, I, I did a, a, a thing where I collected a whole bunch of new folks in the last year. However, um, from time to time I will be looking for new playtesters and then I might post something on the website and it will last for probably two days uh, because that's as long as it will take for me to get another 500 playtesters <laughs> yeah. put together uh, under and, you know, and then it'll take me the next six months to put them all under NDA and all and all that stuff, and it's a lot of work. And so uh, uh, there is a process. Uh, just keep your eye on the website. That's part of it. And Brian. And Brian. <laughs> well, you know, or know somebody who's already a part of playtesting uh, and uh, get in their group because I frequently am NDAing new players for Dungeon Masters who have expanded or changed up the uh, folks that are playing in their groups. So speaking of websites, uh, what's new with the DMs Guild? The Dungeon Masters Guild uh, has continued to baffle and amaze me, uh, but the newest 
thing uh, is the Gilded Up program. We have 10 wonderful folks out there who are uh, working together collaboratively to build products that are essentially DLC for the products that we're making. Um, and uh, they are some of the, the best and brightest community creators out there. And they love to work with each other and to riff off each other and feed uh, off of each other's ideas and build things together. And like when we build a product internally, it's always done as a collaborative process. <coughs> For them, this collaborative process um, in a team like this is new, but they're quickly discovering that the quality of their work that they're creating is far outstrips anything they may have created before. Uh, and uh, I believe folks who are going on there and purchasing uh, the products that they're creating, uh, and by the way, those proceeds go directly to them. And they split them like, you know, 10 ways, so please help them out. <laughs> no, are they going to have content for uh, Xanathars? Absolutely, yeah, they are creating some content for Xanathars. They are building some subclasses of their own, and they're building some uh, new uh, NPC uh, for, uh, for Dungeon Masters to use and so forth. And, and one of the things that I always encourage them to do, because I sit like as a fly on the wall inside of their, their Slack channel where they all, uh, they all collaborate with each other, um, and kind of time I, I shout out little words of encouragement is that whenever they, they create uh, an element, particularly a rules element, um, if they want to see it get used more widely, the best thing to do is to take that rules element and put it inside something that is adventure content related, whether it's a full-on adventure or they take it and they pick an NPC and they make it a part of a, a setting that's fully fleshed out, like an inn or whatever. Um, or they take it and they put all kinds of adventure hooks on that type of a Thing, whatever the rules element happens to be, whether it's a trap or an NPC or a monster or whatever it is that they're creating, uh, and show basically dungeon masters, because there's a lot of new dungeon masters out there, how to use the thing that, the, that they're giving them, right? And provide that kind of instruction and guidance and inspiration. If you've been on dmsguild.com, you may have noticed that uh, coinciding with the release of our last adventure, Tomb of Annihilation, we had a bunch of content up there that actually was attached to the adventure. Um, the adventure was sort of written to allow um, outside folks to kind of take parts of the land of Chult and flesh it out and develop it on their own, which a bunch of people did. So if you're looking for additional tomb content, dmskill.com is a great place to find the best stuff. Because as you've seen and as Mike talked about before, our subclasses go through a very strict vetting and playtesting process. Their subclasses for them are going to be something that we look at internally and that we look at. And if you want to play with them in your home game, I highly encourage you to do so. Um, but that's part of the reason why I, I always encourage them to put some additional content around each one of the things, the rules elements that they create, so that you so that there is something there that I can make adventures illegal, whether it's adventure content or whatever the case may be, um, without having to take those subclasses that they're making, 
I don't see nearly the amount of development that, that we're using right now because they just don't have the resources to do that, right? They're just, they, they all have day jobs that they do outside of just working together to make this content. Um, uh, so what I don't want to do is introduce that to Adventures League Play, which is which is D and D play, right? And completely disrupt the game and scare away all of my new dungeon masters who are coming in and who don't necessarily have access to uh, or know about all that stuff. gets developed by Jeremy. It is static forever. Yeah. No. No. They all use essentially the same static poison. Yeah. Um, their poison isn't variable depending on who's creating it or who's secreting it. The question I think from my perspective with more as they grow in um, power, does it take their proficiency online? Sure. Uh, the, the thing is is that at this point um, since it's not something that we allow in Adventures League play, um, it is officially unofficial. If you're playing with it in your home game, which is not Adventures League legal, um, you can do whatever you want with it. You're the Dungeon Master. I'm 17 level. I'm more toxic now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do, 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 you know, get down with your bad self. Do whatever you want. If you want to make it progress up with the, with the levels, play with it, right? Um, but uh, I'm looking for uh, two minutes of Jeremy's free time, which never seems to like yeah. transpire. He's a little busy. Free time is, is, in, is in yeah is in rare form around there. Uh, uh, he also broke his foot, which is why he's not here. So to, to get him to look at it, and uh, and he, I just I don't think he really likes frogs either. <laughs> 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 have time 
for years and years yeah. and years to think about so fundamental and critical a question. Uh, and those are the, that's the question that is foremost in my mind whenever I'm working on something new. Yeah, okay. and how does that fit into organized play at that point, right? The Avengers League and so forth, which we, um, you know, very, very frequently in the past, the Avengers League and regular, and regular D&D were these two parallel things that kind of ran next to each other, and they did kind of the same thing, but nobody ever thought of them as one thing. We really need them to be one thing. D&D and Adventures League are the same thing. So more and more, as we go forward, we make our plans to just kind of converge them and make them one game. So that no matter what you're doing with your playing an organized player, playing in your own built game, it's all those dragons. So back to psionics for a minute. Um, it's had a very checkered past. You know, it's, it's kind of stuck into an appendix back in DD. And I thought it was great in second edition, well away with the best product ever made. Um, do you feel um, that it needs to be part of the game because of the history that has been involved since you carried on the rules? Or do you think it really has a viable place within the system? So one of the things that I've been doing when thinking about psionics, what we're going to do with it, um, the, the, the big, one of the, I thought the most telling pieces of feedback for the current stick to mystic was it felt like it lacked a theme. You know, it was just kind of doing all these different things because it could. And so I went back and uh, looked at Dark Sun uh, and really read through all the books and thought about why is Dark Sun and then later Eberron, why were those the worlds where psionics was prominent? And a lot of the thinking we do these days, um, Chris, I don't know if he's in, you know, long designed to do a chime in on, but we really think of D&D as the multiverse and like one big cosmological structure where Dark Sun is a world of material plane alongside, you know, Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms and all that. So why is it in this sort of devastated world, why is Sonic so prominent? Why that every humanoid has Sonic and I think that's kind of the thing we need to do is really figure out what is psionics cosmically, like why does it exist? You know, and, and there's a lot of interesting things when you, one of the really fun things I'm working on D&D right now is D&D um, for a long time spent, spilled, spent a lot of time talking about very, very specific things. Like if you had bought the Draconomicon for, for third edition, let's say, it told you, it showed you the biological, you know, uh, the, the anatomy of dragons, right? It spent a lot of time talking about that kind of stuff. But it didn't say anything about the myths of dragons. It didn't really go into details like why are dragons who they are, and why do they do what they do, and what how does that more importantly relate to everything else in the cosmos? You know, there's an interesting thing where you look at the embedded history of DD, like there's things like the mind players used to rule the entire material plane, essentially. Well, what was happening with the gods when that was happening, right? Like if you had elves and dwarves and humans running around, but they're all Mind players rule everything. What what was going on? And then when you think mind players are psionic, what does that mean for psionics? So I think that's what I, th I think it, it, it can definitely be part of the game. But I think what we need to do is to start answering those sort of mythological questions of what is psionics? What would a magic using person think of psionics? Especially when you consider what it's attached to and the worlds in which it has appeared and that sort of primordial history of like when it was prominent. Like, what does it mean? We know mind players don't necessarily have gods. So what did it mean for the gods when the mind players were running everything? What was that period like? What was happening? And now the mind players, when they fell, what happened? Like, what happened? Like, what, what followed from that? So I think it is an integral part of D&D &D in the sense that it's a key part of its, the, the cosmological history. 
Um, but it's not quite clear yet what that might mean in terms of an actual practical uh, application in the game. But I think it's something that's always going to be there, and I think what it needs now is a very clear focus on what it is. You know, we have divine magic, we know what that is and what it does, and same with arcane. How does psionics fit alongside it? I have two footnotes. One, uh, I just had a conversation with Jeremy and a few others uh, at the beginning of last week in the office about psionics, and we were talking about psionics in the realms specifically, and where does it come from, and is it something that you tap into the way magic taps into the weave? Is it part of the weave? Is it just another kind of magic? That is projected differently. It's like just got a different visual effect to it. We didn't come to any conclusions because those are deep questions that really need to involve all of us. Um, second footnote is that DD has, through all of its editions, had this element of inclusivity, not only in terms of the people playing the game, but in terms of what the multiverse will allow. And I think that goes as far back as products like Ravenloft, which stretch the bounds of medieval fantasy by pulling in other genres. So you can have a perfectly viable gothic horror D&D campaign. By the same token, Expedition the Barrier Peak shows you can push D&D out of um, a fantasy to more of science fiction, and the game can withstand it, and the campaign can withstand it. And I think part of the reason why Sionix has prevailed and not gone the way of the Bec de Corbin. Is that there are campaigns out there and DMs out there who do feel that they can build a DD game around it and make it feel like it belongs there. Yeah, I think if you've uh, read Volo's Guide, um, the, uh, the monster book we did last year, you kind of see what our direction is, where we're taking things like orcs. And rather than say orcs are evil because it says chaotic evil in the monster manual, it's saying, well, here's how orcs act. And they act this way because they have this pantheon of deities that sort of teaches these specific things. And here's how those deities relate, and here's the, the resulting behavior based on that culture. And I think it's kind of taking some of those concepts and going like much bigger, broader concepts, you know, and, and playing out the mythologies behind them. Okay, you mentioned Eberron. I'm not going to ask if you're working on Eberron, but other people at Wizards are like, every meeting, they're like, hey, what about Eberron? <laughs> like, are there some people like that might get us Eberron one day again? <laughs> I think, so one of the interesting things about our settings is, um, you know, Chris is talking about genre and how Ravenloft is got the car for D&D. And one of the challenges that D&D had in the, in the 90s was you had all these settings that had their full product lines, and they're all essentially competing with each other. And one of the things that I think is interesting to consider is if you think of a setting rather than being a place, but being a genre, it twists a bit what you might actually do with it in terms of a product, but also brings in a lot more clarity into what role that setting plays in the broader product line, like thinking of the idea of there's products you're buying that are on a shelf, what does it mean? Especially for a new player to be able to come in and think, I get Dungeons and Dragons, and Dungeons and Dragons, you can kind of think of the typical Dungeons and Dragons campaign as represented in the player's handbook, looks a lot like the Forgotten Realms. That's like your base D&D. But then if you think of things like, well, Dark Sun is like post-apocalyptic D&D, Ravenloft is uh, gothic horror D&D, Eberron, Eberron's a bit flexible, it can be like film noir D&D, or it could be pulp D&D, but each of those settings having a different genre then suddenly it starts to make a lot more sense from a product line standpoint, and it's a much clearer conversation with the new player. 
So it's definitely something we've thought about in the sense that we probably have a pretty good idea of what we want to do with Eberron in terms of the genre or genres. And uh, a lot of it just comes down to doing it right. Um, we want to make sure we take the time and um, that when it comes out, it feels like a definitive book because we don't do the sort of product line, you know, where it's like, okay, you get, we, we never want you to buy a book and need anything other than the core three to use it. So that would apply to anything we do in the settings too. Like if there's an Eberron product, if we did anything else in Eberron, those would not assume that you own that first Eberron book. So, so yeah, it's definitely something we're thinking about a lot. So, well, and in fact, all the settings. Yeah, one of the things I think a lot about with settings is how they've been done in the past and how those have been used as products. Um, I think it's a shame, for instance, if you buy a setting book and you only use 5% of it, and it then sits on a shelf for 20 years, never get anything more out of it. I don't feel like that's a good return on your investment. So I'm always thinking about what do you put in the book so that the DM not only feels compelled to use it, but when they use it, they're really happy that they did. And by the end of it, they feel like they've used 90, 95% or 100% of it in their games. And so with that in mind, I wonder you know, what goes into that book. Is it better to have sort of a gloss really big world with like a paragraph of every place? Or is it better to narrow the focus and give places more detail so that the DM has more information about this in case they don't have to create on their own? Because one of the other things that's different now than in the 90s or the 80s is people don't have as much time. And DMs don't have as much time for things like preparation. There's too many things competing and vying for our attention. And so with settings, I feel like we have to be complete and give something that the DM can sort of pick up and use right away in his or her campaigns with as little preparation as possible because they don't have time necessarily to come up with all of their own adventure content to drive 10 or 20 levels of play. Yeah. Questions in the back? Um, one question is, since I run Adventure League and Homebrew, um, what would you say is like an appropriate level of deviation while still adhering to like adventure league like rules versus building your own you know kind of flair to it but still keeping it up? Can you say that again, please? So trying to make it engaging and add something your own to it while still making it AL legal versus a complete sure. Taking rules elements like whole cloth and then like basically just reskinning them, right? But essentially it's the same rules element it was before with a different package. That generally speaking is fine for Adventures League. Um, I, I personally have been known to take like a monster and basically call it something else and describe it differently and give it its own little twist. Um, but the actual like Construction inside the game of the monster is still there. Um, that way, I don't have to worry about whether that's balanced or not, or whether it's going to meet my needs or purposes as a dungeon master inside, like an adventure context. I mean, it works just fine. That's just one example. Um, so, I guess when it comes to telling stories in Adventures League or running the game in Adventures League, um, you should try and make the adventure as much your own as possible and your players are going to take it probably in directions that 
the, the story may or may not want to go, right? Um, uh, as long as you have that time to put into it, it's okay to adjust that adventure and so forth in the current context of the, of the campaign. Uh, I, I talked about this um, at the last panel, and I'll say it here, and that is, is that in the next week or so, we're going to have a fairly sizable, well, actually, it's not going to be very sizable as far as like length, because it's going to only take you probably about 20 minutes to finish it, but a good survey that's going to be going on specifically with regards to uh, Adventures League. Um, and I would encourage everybody to participate in it. And uh, we're really looking to find a way to bring the Adventures League, because there's a lot of things in the Adventures League that exist today that were true in the RPGA like 20 years ago, right? Uh, I really want to bring the Adventures League into the 21st century with our new players and our new Dungeon Masters and make it more friendly to a new audience so that we can you know, continue to grow that organization and always have new fresh players and Dungeon Masters, specifically Dungeon Masters, who will come in and participate. Um, and I think we're going to answer some of those questions that you're talking about, though, with regards to Dungeon Mastering, and we'll see some change. As a lifelong fan of the Forgotten Realms, I couldn't have been happier when 5th edition logged onto that and made that the core world. Um, so I kind of two-parter. The first part is, um, is it reasonable to expect that we might see more novels revolving in that world? Um, <coughs> on the adventure content or what have you, will there be any more novelizations of things going on in the realms? And then, kind of going on to what was said earlier about Eberron, I always felt like Planescape tied various elements together, whether it was Dark Sun or even Ravenloft, you know, because it's an ethereal plane and so forth. So, um, is it also reasonable to expect that there is some, some real interest in bringing some of that forward and maybe can give some <laughs> So, I'll start with the second question and then go to the first one. So, yeah, uh, Planescape, I mean, we mentioned in the, the, the DMG, the Master's Guide, uh, with a uh, single and everything like that. Um, we, so we actually have, in a rough draft form, the sort of cosmological, you know, ties for how all the settings could come back in terms of being like, hey, we have products for them. And they all <coughs> fit together cosmically. Even Spelljammer, right, we sort of figured out how that would fit in. The, uh, and Dark Sun and Eberron, the more outlier ones, and there's ones like Greyhawk, and Ravenloft already has an answer for that question. So yeah, definitely. Uh, it's just a matter of time. I said it's about getting it right and making sure that it's something that is accessible to newcomers. I kind of have a personal thing where when I used to read comics, I stopped about 10 years ago, but I kind of felt they were getting too self-referential, where if you weren't already a fan, it was just it didn't make any sense. Uh, there was one in comic, I'm not gonna name the names because I don't want whatever, but the um, you know, they would just do things like you're reading the comic and then there's like some character from the 80s, like he's in the background of a panel, and it's just like Unless you knew who that character was, you were just like, why is this, this makes no sense, right? But if you're like a 40 or 30 something year old person who was reading comics back in the 80s, like, oh, that's a great, you get it. But for a new reader, it just doesn't make any sense. So I want to avoid doing things like that, where, like, so we always assume for any product, like Chris, Chris mentioned this earlier, we assume that's someone's first product. You know, now obviously if someone doesn't know the core rule books and they go and buy an adventure, it's whatever. But just the idea of the concepts in it don't require you know, a master's degree in D&D to figure it out. <laughs> you know? so, the, um, so that's kind of where it comes into thinking, how do you frame Eberron, how do you frame Planescape, and things like that. So if you have the core three, this seems like a natural one. So, 
and then the visuals. And then the first question, novels. So novel, the novel business is very tricky because in games, we are a game company. And what we found out um, is that we're a game company trying to publish novels. <laughs> it's, it's not something that we're necessarily really good at. Um, and so right now, all that, the, the novels business is basically on pause right now. Um, because I feel when we were looking at the long-term business a few years back, we could look at tabletop games like you know, for, for fifth and board games, and we could find ways in which we could see, okay, if we follow this plan, we're really confident that people will be excited and engaged by it, and it'll get a lot of attention and be positive and get people going out. And then, you know, with the fifth, the launch and stuff like that, it's been working well. We don't really have a plan like that for novels, because I think on my entire team, I don't have anyone who I'd say is an expert on novels and knows book publishing. I've never written a novel. Yeah, right. Or, you know, so that's... You know something about book publishing. Yeah. <laughs> But it's just, we, don't, we just don't have that, that expertise right now. So it's not something where it's like, oh, we would never do that again, but it's also not something like, we're doing it right now. Like, it's something that would have to be something that makes sense for us, and that also we have the talent on our side or a partnership where it really makes sense. Right. We've had some luck with partnerships on the digital side, because there was a while when we tried to do digital stuff ourselves. Same thing. Yeah. We're, we're a game company, not a software company. Um, and so we, we've entered into partnerships with companies that can put out great games um, in the digital format and great tools in the digital format. You know, maybe that will help us with the novels in some way. There's a question right here. Yeah. Uh, when you first came out with 5th edition, you had two seasons of Tealman, sort of a continuing storyline that went past to, went two seasons. I was wondering if you're planning to do something like that to get maybe a storyline that lasts three or four seasons. Um, probably not that long, Chris. Do you want to? <laughs> uh, no, uh, I don't. I don't know if we're gonna have uh, a storyline that lasts multiple. Uh, I'm about to lie. Okay. So. Well, you can just. You can just <laughs> 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 um, uh, okay. So, so the T thing was really two products that serviced one story. Is what it really came down to. Okay. Right, and, um, and that, and the span of time that it ran was basically the same. Basically the same. Stories. We just yeah. decided to make it two books instead of one. We've yeah. since changed it and now put all of the adventure in one book. Yeah, and, and and here's the thing is is that when we first started this, we had no idea what the best possible product mix for each year was going to be, and as we went forward and continued making uh, books, um, we started to get the idea of what that was. Right, and it really came down to that one really solid story every year, one big story every year, works really well. Now, that isn't to say that we won't tell that story in multiple products again. We may definitely very, 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 very well tell that, that, that story over the course of multiple books, but it's still going to be that one story in one year type of thing, so that we have an opportunity to refresh at the beginning of the next year. Yeah. Part of that, by the way, is driven by just an analysis of play patterns in the real world. Um, and we, we kind of have a sense of how long it takes a DM to get through the content that we provide. And we assume that you know the DM may not start the campaign as soon as they pick up the book. Uh, and uh, we found when we tried to do two stories here, for instance, that the DMs couldn't keep up. Yeah. That the new story was coming out before they finished the previous one, and it was putting them in this awkward not really happy kind of place, and so we made adjustments based on that. If that pattern were to change, 
we would change. Yeah. For the for the dungeon masters out there who, who only have the time and the groups only have the time to run through the, just the one story, they can they can be very happy to get our one product or whatever it is, the products we have for that one story, and run that story over the course of the year and have a great experience. <coughs> now, we know there are still some groups out there, and they're not majority, but they're and they're mostly adventurous league folks at this point who burn through content like nobody's business. They got the, the burn through content furnaces running constantly, right? Which is why we uh, have adopted the model, especially starting with this season, where the adventurous league content basically expands the experience of the story that we're telling, right? So if you play season seven adventures for Tomb of Annihilation, their focus is in expanding the story we're already experiencing in the hardcover, but it, it takes you longer to get through it because we're giving you more content to do it with, and we'll continue to do that for those groups so they have that additional content to play because they want to play, you know, a couple times a week or whatever the case may be. That's the problem. With Xanathar's being the first major expansion of the third handbook, I was curious what, what things were thrown on the whiteboard of design goals, of like, okay, we have to make sure we do this, you know, the brainstorming session, we guys first start now thinking about it. Yeah, so the idea was that, you know, kind of going back to this idea that in the past, this would be the point where a new edition is coming out, the idea was, I like to think of it as, if you love playing archers, like, you just, I like playing character pieces of them, you're probably at the point now where you've used all the options in the player's handbook to make your various, you've played a ranger, you've played a fighter, you've played an Eldritch Knight, you played whatever, right? And so the idea is what we want this book to do is to then give you a couple more options for playing that type of character. That it basically has like two to three more kind of characters that fill that sort of archetype, uh, but do something distinct. And so the idea was to, for like to Chris's point, players who play, burn through a lot of content, you've been playing lots of campaigns, making lots of characters, the stuff here feels uh, new and fresh and is doing different things than you've seen before. But at the same time, the concepts, especially with the subclasses, had to be things that would resonate with new players. So for instance, uh, the Arcane Archer, I think is a great example of that. It's one of the new fighter subclasses in the book. Um, it's something that's, if you have, so at one point we thought the Arcane Archer could just use spells. But then you think, well, why bother? Because then you could just play an Eldritch Knight. So we instead decided we'll create unique magic effects, one for each school of magic. So if you've already played an Eldritch Knight who you played as an archer, um, you could play a, an Arcane Archer and feel very different. It's a very novel character for you. But at the same time, the concept of the Arcane Archer had to be something that for a new player, maybe Xanathar is the first expansion they buy, um, it made sense. Like they could understand what the concept was. It wasn't something that was just abstract or purely mechanical. Um, it had a story hook that was distinct. Uh, and it was something that if you're just a fantasy fan rather than a DD fan, it, it would make sense to you. So that was from the player's side the main, the main design goal. For the DM side, it was really just about what are the things that DMs want is more support for. So things like tools. Uh, we know tool prof proficiencies are something that brought up a lot of questions for Dungeon Masters. <laughs> no, and it's one of those things where it's like, okay, how can I actually make tools useful in my game? So the book tries to answer that. You know? And, uh, how do we get adamantine weapons? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So just for DM saying, okay, it's been three years, we've kind of seen the bugs and the system and missing features, like software and operating systems. Like, okay, now it's just upgrade with the features people have been asking. 
as far as process goes, a little behind the scenes work. What happens at the very before a product is worked on? Basically, a one page is created by whoever is going to be leading that project to sort of capture the essence of the vision of the product, and then that person expands it into an outline. But even after the outline is approved, changes to that outline are constant. Yeah. Because even while we're working on a book up through editing people come up with great ideas or a new insight or we make a discovery about something that's going on in the community that we need to address. And so the product, stuff can get added very, very late in, in the process and then have to go through this sort of mini process of quickly getting developed and quickly getting yeah. edited uh, so that it fits with everything else. But at what point in the process, for instance, did the random encounter table, the random uh, name generator tables, those actually came in pretty early because that was something we saw a lot of people asking for. It was like, I need to name my character. I, I'm bad at making up names. Right. So it's like. Yeah, there's all these tables at the yeah. back that has all these different uh, tables for generating names for all kinds of human cultures as well as all non human uh, core races. Conversely, the, the common magic items of stuff right. that I designed was not, was not in the original outline. That was born out of a basically a, a conversation just in our cube area saying, Hey, you know, there aren't a lot of common magic items in the game. Maybe we should have more of those. Yeah. And then so I just went off on a weekend uh, and created a bunch for Jeremy to look at, and he got rid of all the ones he didn't like, and the rest ended up in the book. But that was that was just a, a you know, that conversation, if it hadn't happened, that whole section of the book would just be out there. Yeah. So I'm going to go start over here and work my across over here. So in like the last two years, Twitch, podcasts, all that kind of thing has really expanded out the game. Yeah. Like so internally, how do you guys view that? Is it is it seen as marketing? Is it seen as I mean, so obviously streams of annihilation like launch the book. You know, I, I would love to just kind of hear your thoughts on that and how it's changing. It's uh, the internet and and the the discovery that D is not only fun to play but fun to watch and listen to, uh, which goes back about ten years. The acquisitions in podcasts. Uh, that revelation and the, uh, the propulsion of technology insofar as allowing you to play with your friends and not go through the technological hiccups that you had to go through early on. The games are pretty smooth, the software doesn't crash, things are kind of smoothing themselves out. These things have all combined to create this revolution where people who would normally have been turned off by the game, either by the weight of the books or the, the the idea that they couldn't play conveniently, that's all sort of dissolving. And so we're getting a lot more new players in the game, a lot more players who wouldn't have captured otherwise. And we see the continuation of this going forward as a huge opportunity uh, to reach out to even more people. So it is, for us, a marketing thing, and it's also an experiential thing, a community-building thing, that we're now, we've got a D&D channel on Twitch it has, what, 50 hours of programming? And if that's not enough, there's probably another 500 hours of D&D games going on there. You could literally watch a D&D game every hour of every day, seven days a week now, practically. Um, and we're looking to foster the best of those and uh, help people create their own games by feeling that they can do that on their own. Uh, that's why our production value is still <laughs> it's not because we don't have the money. It's because um, the uh, I feel I feel too that what we're seeing is the full range of DMing styles, and that's also important to get out there. That 
your, you as a DM have your own style that's no better or no worse than anybody else's style if you're putting your heart and your mind and your soul into it. And we just want you to be comfortable with that. And so showing off a bunch of DMs doing things differently is also part of our greater plan.
The other thing we're aware of is that D&D uh, &D by its nature, very nature encourages people to create their own content. And so we just want to make sure that continuing forward that we have menus for people to share that content with each other and then make their own decisions about what they want to include in their personal home games. Yeah. How do you decide when it's time for a new edition? Is the is the 15,000 feet limit? Uh, <laughs> is it one of top heavy? No, it's really based on feedback. Right? Like yeah. when we see the audience saying, we think it's time for a new edition. And I think that the, the two main ways that happens are um, there's enough bumps in the core system that come out from playing that we realize the typical group playing the game that's an experienced group, so they've been playing for a few years, is using a, a fairly standard set of house rules applied to, I'm sorry, a, a fairly common set of problems that they are addressing by a house rule. So let's just make up an example. We know the typical DD group of experienced players is, is using passive perception in a different way. Because just something has come up and it's just not working, it's irritating. And then a new player coming in can expect from an experienced group who said, okay, here's the player's handbook, but here are the three things that we know we're not using. And that just becomes very common that sort of the community coalesces around three or four issues that are key. So that's more, that's, I mean, that's like the use scenario of people just like, there's some warts in the system, and now after a few, whatever number of years, hopefully like 10 years, not three. <laughs> three is too late, because right, but the, uh, that we can see, okay, it makes sense to do, a new, to do a new edition because there are these pain points that everyone's experiencing that if we were to fix it, the typical DM would go, cool, thanks, right? Because essentially it would give us a chance to do that, do, you know, we would play test it and offer solutions and see changes so people would agree this is clearly an upgrade. The other path is I can imagine a scenario where the core system remains mostly the same. But let's say we do Xanathars, and let's say three or four years from now we do a similar product, and so it's year 10, and what we see is you're the new player, you sit down with an existing group, and they're like, and you're like, hey, uh, the new new player, what do you want to play? And they say, well, I want to play like a heroic knight. They say, great, in expansion two, there's the perfect subclass, right? And you're seeing that consistently the players are using more things from the expansion books than the player's handbook. So what I could see a new edition in that case saying, okay, here's a new player's handbook in sixth edition, the subclasses have changed, and maybe some new races have been added, or you know, but it's still basically the same game. It's just when we see what people are playing, they're like, you know, I'll give an example. Like the champion fighter is fine, but really this new fighter is actually perfect for players who really don't want much complexity. It's doing it's doing what the champion conceptually was trying to do, but doing it better. To the point again where people would say, okay, this is just easier. A new player coming in doesn't feel they need to buy any expansions, they just buy a player's handbook. And if I'm a player dungeon master, I'm just buying this New player's handbook is like, you know, instead of carrying three books to the table, I'm just carrying this one. So that's where I can see the, the two paths to, to, to a new edition. Because for us, I mean, I, you never want to say never, but I, I, I have trouble picturing a scenario where we don't have backwards compatibility between a theoretical sixth and fifth because fifth is working so well. It would have to be something where, for instance, like we have a huge number of new players coming in and they want something different, or, you know, there's just the, the as the system gets older, people are just getting more and more irritated with some of the things that So, a question back here, Linker. Uh, I'm sure you've answered this question before, but I've not heard it. So, what was the justification or the reasoning behind not putting prices on management items when DMG came out and we have ranges and you just kind of as a DM, you're like, one to 10,000. Yeah. And you kind of throw your hands up, but I don't know what to do with this. No, because a lot of it was, the we were either going to put the same price on everything in the category, or we were going to do what we ended up doing. Because, I'm going to be honest with you, right? Sure. Those prices are fake. 
and like third, but they were just made, they're just made up. Like there was there was no real balance between them. Yes. because it was because it's just too much stuff to ever actually test and, and get right. The um, so we just decided we're not going to try to pretend that it's anything more than a range. And it really a great example would be imagine now uh, uh, the cloak of the manta ray, right? I'm playing a dark sun campaign. Worth zero, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing in a pirate campaign, right? It's worth a lot. And so that's the challenge is magic items are so contextual. And you can we can get away with, with spells and stuff because we assume, well, because a spell is like I can choose water breathing or I can choose fireball. And so if I'm playing in the pirate campaign, I might choose water breathing because that's gonna be really useful because I know the campaign. But if I'm playing dark, so I'm just gonna take fireball. You don't have that same uh, that same uh, parallel development. Like when I find a magic item, I find that item. I don't find the option to choose a third level item like you would for a spell. So trying to get very specific with the prices was just going to be wrong. Like we knew it'd be it'd be wrong far more often than to be right. So it is something where like I know it's probably not the answer you want to hear. Like it'd be nice to just tell me the damn price, Mister Designer. <laughs> yeah. But but really there there is no price, right? And it's just it, it, because it is so because. As soon as I put a price on something, and if, if there's five different campaigns that allow the purchase of magic items, that price is wrong for four of them. Sure. The, um, now, we can assume, like if you're playing a Threat Realm style campaign, but even there, you can buy campaigns on the Sea of Fallen Stars, I'm playing through Tomb of Annihilations, now this thing is super useful, things like that. So that's really just what it comes down to, is that the, um, and, and that's just based on our experience with third and fourth, you know, we're trying to be very precise with it, and it just it just didn't work out. because. Uh, that both those games were played by magic items being wildly more useful. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the, the levels are always wrong. Yeah. Try to build the price of magic item with the uh, the three five dungeon master's guide. And yeah. You'll oh see yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What you're talking about. yeah. Yep. The <laughs> question here. Any plans to fix the index? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Huge problem for first time players. Like, yeah. They say a... it's fire damage, and I look, I'm like, what? Uh, so yeah. this yeah, and, and that's and it's something which we. We've talked about, and uh, there aren't any plans now because we're actually worried that if we were to make any changes to the player's handbook, we don't want any position of people feeling like, oh, I'm supposed to buy the new player's handbook. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's funny, it's like this chicken and egg thing. The book is selling so well that there's like, you know, like a, like a, there's a bajillion of the things out there. We don't want people to feel like, oh, the, the earlier printings aren't worth buying. But then it just it creates a weird message for so it's like the ideal world would be they don't want to be in the business of selling unhappiness to people. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's there was even what was it was it the footer that we want that, that, that yeah the, the footer and the folios and the pages uh, we did with the player's handbook are by part not chapter yeah. which yeah. is something that we discovered when we got the first bounce in yeah um, and uh, we never would have done it that way we didn't do the other books that way. No, we didn't want to do it that way, but it's the same thing. It's like, but if we change but if we this, change it, then you know the X numbers of hundreds of thousands of people who bought this book are going to feel like they're just going to have to buy the next one. Yeah, it's just a perception more problem. More. So we're being more conservative. And I'll be a bit, part of it might be after a third and fourth, we're very aggressive with errata and changing things all the time. Uh, we're probably maybe maybe we're being too conservative. I don't know, but we're just kind of like we don't want to change. So we want people to feel whether it's a first printing or a seventh printing, whatever printing we're on now, that it's just like oh, it's the same book. I mean, uh, other than obvious errata that we've published in some pages. In the future, will the index be better? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, maybe we, we, <laughs> we have more lessons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we do another one, we, we could always do one that we just post online. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. People yeah. have that post I found when I posted it to our game. Yeah. I'm like, here, guys, you guys want to realize that's true. More page numbers. Yes, as opposed to March page funding. Yeah. 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 See, see yeah. this. This. It takes way more characters than just putting a big. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to flip. So, yeah, I don't know if there's a panel after us. So why don't we do one more question, then we'll call it a day. Back here. Um, so I've I've only been playing for like I don't know like five or eight years, but like a lot of what we did was just the core rules. We never did any campaigns or anything like that. Do you guys ever feel like you're chained to the older material when you're making things? I mean, like I always consider like there's the six main class or main races that you have to have in D and D. Do you ever like well, what would we put in like a seventh race? Yeah, no, we think about it all the time. And actually, um, that's something which, in a theoretical 6th edition, um, you might see us, like right now we have a comment on common races. We probably wouldn't drop a race, uh, because even, even if, let's say, only 10% of players chose one race, let's say, let's say even lower than that, 5%, it's our least popular race, only 5% of players are very hard to use Even though that's only that's 1 in 20 players, the typical group has 5 players, so that's actually 1 in 4 gaming groups. Has a, has, a, has a player playing that race. So when you change it or remove it, you're actually disrupting a quarter of your, of your, 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 your player base. So we probably wouldn't uh, move stuff out, but like we could, we could, we have kind of talked a little bit about like, would we downgrade races that right now we mark as common to uncommon? Because we just, people aren't playing them as often, and then promote a race that might be being played more often up to common, and thinking more often in terms of, okay, how does this race get integrated in terms of the mythology, stories, more NPCs show up, do we put some more thought in our culture, things like that. So I think for us, a lot of the change is more organic. We don't necessarily want to be in a position of like a sudden drastic change overnight that no one sees coming. My favorite kind of change is when we do something and people go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Or, you know, oh yeah, that's how we've been running it. So, and it just feels organic. Yeah, and that's where we're. But we are so like, if you look at Volo's guide, you know, we're kind of slowly changing like the mythology of monsters, kind of, especially areas where it's been a blank page or it was up to the settings to define, there was no like one cosmic truth behind it, we're bringing a lot more of that stuff in. So, so yeah. All right, well thanks everyone for turning out. Thanks for listening to the D&D State of the Industry panel, recorded at GameholeCon 2017 and presented by nerdsonearth.com. Now get out there and play more D&D. Nerds.